Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Well, welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. And I'm Crockpot. And we have the pleasure, this is session five of our series, and we have the pleasure of being in Isaiah 33 this morning. But before we got started, one of our own here, Professor D himself, he ran the Chicago Marathon yesterday, and this is five, and we're recording extremely early. We, we decided that we wanted to get, we wanted to get this underway, and, and, we, and, and I myself had a kind of crazy weekend, so I messed up the recording schedule. So here we are, five o'clock in the morning. On, on, on a Monday morning, and this is and this is five o'clock in the morning after Professor D has run the Chicago Marathon. So I wanted to give, I, I just wanted you listeners to know the, the lengths we go. I'm just kidding. I, I just wanted to give Professor D an opportunity. <laughs> to you, Professor D, an opportunity. Professor D, what was it like? Just give your, give your Chicago Marathon experience for us. Sure. Um, well, you know, the Chicago Marathon is always kind of a big event in my house now. I, this is the first time I've run it in um, in seven years, and my wife's been running it the last eight. So um, you know that's the way that the marathon. Is. So it's always a big event in our home. Um, and one of the big things with the marathons, obviously, the training that goes into it just to be ready for it physically and mentally. I've always liked the thing about the marathon over any other sporting event that I feel is is, is perhaps the greatest metaphor for life. You know. Life is not a sprint. Life really is a marathon. You have moments where you have, you're going really great. And then you have challenges where you hit certain walls in the running and your pace goes down. You sustain an injury or something. But the show must go on. We have to get to that mile 26.2. And it's not enough to get to mile 26. You have to get to 26.2 if you're going to receive the finisher's medal. And, I, and that's just kind of the big thing with the marathon. It's just, I had a really great run. Um, the, the weather was great for it, for the most part. The only problem is that because my, my group of runners starts late, we were more affected by the sun being out there at some point. And I think that that kind of hurt a lot of our performances. But, but we, powered tr- we powered through, we soldiered on, and we finished. Hmm. And at the end all the pain and all that, you're just kind of elated that you're done with it. And I think that that's a great, again, that's a great metaphor for life. There's going to be a time where there's going to be a reward. All the things that we go through in the here and now, there's going to be a reward. It will be over. And I think that there's a great message of hope there. Amen. And this is the, if you really think about it, this is the one sport that the Bible cares about because yeah. the image that Paul uses you know, he's, even as he looks at his own life, he's run his race and, yeah. and there's something about that. And I make, I, I just think that your, that, that message of hope you just gave us, I think it, it sets up perfectly for the message of hope in Isaiah 33. And so we're going to, we're going to be in Isaiah 33 tonight. Again, this is, this is session five of our Isaiah series. And let's, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. God, we, we thank you for um, well, we thank you on a personal level for, for bringing our friend Mick uh, through the marathon yesterday and for giving him the endurance that he required and for his wife as well, as, as she's um, turning into a marathon master now. Um, the, the, we, did, we, we thank you for both of them and we thank you for all those who ran 
and and and, and on a personal level, we're, we're very grateful for the reason they ran. And and I know I know Mick and, and his wife and others ran on Team World Vision, and they were raising funds to provide clean water for people around the world, especially children who don't have clean water to drink. And there's a great purpose for the pain that they've gone through. And and, and God, I, I thank you for bringing them safely through and thank you for um, just how you provide for us, God. And so we just pray that this time in your word would be uh, glorifying to you and that uh, we would, we'd learn some great things and we would apply your wonderful truth into our lives and that we would grasp onto the hope that you give us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, we'll begin here. We are in, again, Isaiah 33. And so we kind of wanted to get started here. Um, I wanted to get, uh, John, we want to kind of go your way. Because we were, the last time we were in chapter 11, so there, there's a big chunk of scripture here. Right. And between 11 and 33. And we've, we've, we've loved going to you. You've been kind of helping us set the table in terms of politics and what might have been going on during this time, if any kings in, in Judah had changed. And so if, if you could help us kind of bring us up to speed, uh, maybe what has happened between chapters 11 and chat now in chapter 33, in terms of all the major pieces on the chessboard here. Okay, so yeah, starting in Isaiah 13, the prophet delivers a series of oracles against the nation surrounding Judah like one after another, starting with Babylon in chapter 13. And I believe that's actually the first time that we hear of Babylon in the book of Isaiah is in chapter 13. Uh, we also know that uh, between when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC and roughly like 100 years-ish later, the Babylonian empire grows to replace Assyria as the dominant power in the ancient Near East. So clearly this process has begun by the time we get to Isaiah 33, but it'll be a while before the major shift from Assyria to Babylon as, as the big political player is kind of finished. So our best guess as to where chapter 33 fits in exactly, uh, because it's not always clear with each part of Isaiah, you know, where does this fit, fit in? We can't, we can't necessarily give like a year to each chapter or fit it in like to the book of Kings, but our good guess for this one, based on the kind of the imagery used in the chapter is that it's during Sennacherib's, that's the king of Assyria, uh, Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. See 2 Kings 18. That's where that story is, is recorded in more detail. And part of what's driving Sennacherib's fury against Judah and King Hezekiah, who's now uh, king of Judah, is they're forming an alliance with Egypt, something that Isaiah warned Judah against. He warned them against doing that again and again. Said, you're putting your trust in the wrong thing. Trust in God. And sure enough, when Assyria, uh, they you know, come knocking on Judah's door, threatening war, and they basically scoff at what they deem as a very foolhardy diplomatic move on Judah's part. You know, say Egypt isn't going to prove much help to them if they even come to Judah's aid at all. So the key players here are Judah and Assyria primarily, plus um, to a lesser extent, Egypt, as Judah's, you know, kind of underwhelming ally, and you have Babylon kind of coming up on the horizon, not directly involved here yet, but starting to peek through as a future threat to Judah. Yeah, that's, that, that was really, really good, John. And in, in our next session, we're going to be in Isaiah 40, and, and all of this is going to come to a head right, right around Isaiah 39 
and, and, and King Hezekiah is going to make a move and he, he makes a move and it's going to be a critical move and, and directly involving Babylon. So we're, we're kind of at this stage where Babylon is coming onto the scene, but not quite yet. And Assyria right. is still barking, you know. And so, yeah, so we're going to see a lot, you know, Sennacherib's going to, you know, his, his big move, I believe, is going to be around, I think it's chapter 32. Um, so that was just, just previous. So, so now, so we're going to see some pieces going here. So yeah, there's a lot going on. It's going to be a scary time, um, in, in for Judah. So, uh, that's, yeah. So thanks for bringing us up to speed here. And we're going to start with verses one to four and, 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 and Mick will help us get started here. So let me just read verses one to four, and then we will, we'll toss some questions around here. Ah, you destroyer. You yourself who have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in times of trouble. Oh, my screen is not helping me. I'll read that again. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap and is leapt upon. So Mick will go your way here. Uh, nation, the Assyria is not actually named, but it, it, it kind of appears here, and maybe I've got this wrong, I don't know. It, it kind of appears here that maybe Isaiah is going bigger than just one nation. That maybe he's just talking about uh, mankind and, and our, our simple political systems or whatnot. How does verse one describe the way the kingdoms of man typically operate? Well, I, before I even go there, uh, I, I have to say, John, that was a remarkable intro. That was great. That made it so much more easier for me to go into this. So going to, to your question specifically, you're absolutely correct in saying, Joel, that Isaiah is going for something bigger here. While in, in the most immediate sense, this is about Assyria. And as John mentioned, based on what we saw in the narratives in, in, in books like Kings and Chronicles, this the story matches very well with what happened. Um, you know, we um, it was I believe it was in 2 Kings 18 and 19 with the account of King Sennacherib. You know, once again, this being foreshadowing um to any and all world power. So while in, the, in an immediate sense, it was about Assyria under Sennacherib at the time, this really applies to any and all of who would come to stand against Israel with Israel, the nation on one level, and basically also the concept of God's chosen people in, in, a, in a broader sense. Amen. And in verse two, there seems to be a prayer and they, they seem to have a longing here in verse two. And I, and this this appears to be you know Isaiah speaking for the people, kind of like an intercession. But but what what, what seems to be the longing? What seems to be their prayer? Well, simply put, it's it's an appeal to God's grace, because neither Israel nor Judah, and for that matter, any of us is worthy of it. It's a prayer that appeals to God's grace for deliverance, our salvation in time of trouble. Man, that that is a great reminder of who God is. Our salvation in time of trouble. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like a, like a Psalm 46, you know, and the same, you know, the Lord, the Lord is our ever present help in a time of trouble. So we will not fear, even though the mountains are crashing into the heart of the sea. And this idea of just being still and just this is, this is the God you've got. Mm -hmm. and so that's, 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 
this is this is a great moment here where just a prayer and just a, a basic longing. And so we read verses three to four. So how how does how how is God described in verses three to four in particular regarding that prayer and that whatever the need? I like how you put that, that you know, we this is what what grace is here and, and what salvation in times of trouble. So now how is God that salvation? So how does God uniquely solve that need in verses three and four based upon verse two? Boy, you really got me earning my wages this morning, don't you? Um, <laughs> Isaiah 1 describes God as a tumultuous noise. In other words, you're, you're, um, you know, the first verse, you, you know, in other words, you're going to hear God coming after you and, and people are going to scatter. He, he, he follows this up with the images of, of caterpillars and locusts. And, and there, there's a creepy aspect to these critters. But more importantly, what they're known for uh they're, what they're also known for is for stripping vines and fields in other words when, when god conquers uh israel's enemies he's going to conquer them but good this, this is how thorough i mean it just talks about the completeness the thoroughness of god's gracious deliverance and how it's going to be mm. beautiful beautiful we continue in verses five and six and some, some good theology here in five to six. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with, with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And I guess a, a point that, that, that I'll, I'll bring here is, is we have a theological perspective here, and that, that basic theological perspective has hope attached to it. So if you look at verse five, the Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. Well, that tells us one immediate thing. Assyria is not dwelling on high. That God is dwelling on high. And whatever problems that Judah is facing, they are not the highest. God's the one who is, who is exalted. And this God is going to fill his people, his nation with justice and righteousness and we almost get the picture here that if the people themselves are not going to live justly, if they're not going to live rightly, that God himself is going to provide that justice and God himself is going to provide that. So he's just going to bring in like it almost pictures like there's a void. And in this big empty void of just chaos and calamity, God's going to bring stability and God's going to bring peace where there was fear. God's going to bring hope <clears throat> where there was hopelessness. And <clears throat> oh, my goodness. Uh, Big Rev has the morning Big Rev voice, but you're going to hear me talk myself into Mickey Mouse. So just you get to be on the front lines of my voice box and coffee right. may not be able to save it. All right. So God, God's going to bring, he's going to bring all these things that, that are lacking or are not present because he will fill. And so I love in verse six, he's the stability of our times. Man, that's right up there with a Psalm 31 where King David said, I trust you, God. I say, you are my God and my times are in your hand. It's like, he is the stability of our times, your times. Woo. That, that's, that, that's almost like a mic drop right there. And if that could be your prayer, oh, listener, man, God, you're my stability. I don't feel very stable. I mean, that, I, mean I know we're getting to the conclusion there, but my goodness, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. It's like God has all these things in abundance. So it's not like Israel or Judah is bugging God and like, hey, God, do you have enough for us? Is there enough to provide? No, no. God has abundance. He's stable. 
And I love this, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure, because that, that's how uh, Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes, believe it's Solomon or don't believe it's Solomon, that's how he landed the plane. This is what it comes down to. The end of the matter is this, to fear God and to obey him. And that's what God is bringing. Those are the kind of people that God journeys with and will journey with forever. Those are the people who will receive God's hope and the people who treasure the very fear of the Lord. Like that right there, it's like, that's what I'm hanging on to. That's my treasure. Like, yes. That's so that basic theology now, Judah can now travel that way. And that becomes their hope. And so at the end of the day, their problems are big, but they're recognizing God's bigger. And so you're either trusting him, or you're not trusting him. And so that's verses five and six. Now verses seven and nine. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste, the travelers cease, covenants are broken. Cities are despised, there is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes, Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. So we'll go to the crockpot here. John, how do these verses paint a picture of hopelessness? If you just walk through the images for us, please. So I think... Remember the, the possible historical backdrop for Isaiah 33 is this episode described in 2 Kings 18 where Assyria has started to invade Judah and one of the evidences of that is here in line 7, 33 verse 7 about covenants being broken. So in 2 Kings, uh, the Assyrian king Sennacherib launches his assault on the cities of Judah and King Hezekiah basically starts groveling and apologizing for upsetting the Assyrian king and asking how they can make this right and how they can make this threat go away, basically. And Sennacherib demands this exorbitant tribute to be paid. Um, so Hezekiah starts um, scouring the temple and the royal treasury, basically, for any gold and silver he can find and sending it the way of the Assyrian king. And the Assyrians pack up and leave that very day. No, they this did nothing, of course, except probably prove that the Judeans are easily bullied. So this is the set of events that's being described in Isaiah 33, 7 to 8. You have these envoys or emissaries of peace who are trying to make things right with the enemy and avoid war. And the enemy is coming in and laying waste to their roads and cities and people, pr making promises and breaking them, showing no regard for man, it says in verse 8, you know, in spite of these efforts to make peace. And it's because of that, that verse nine, the land mourns and languishes. And then four specific places are named as examples of this. Um, Lebanon, Sharon, Bashan, and Carmel. And what do they have in common? Well, in the ancient world, these are famously fertile, healthy places with very rich agriculture, agriculture and forests. You know, you always hear about the, the cedars of Lebanon and the mm -hmm. oaks of Bashan. And they're going to be made unfertile, basically. That's the future that Isaiah is spelling out here, as portended by Assyria's treatment of Judah. So this is all where it's heading. And if that's, you know, if it's that if it's going to be that bad in the richest parts of the world, then you know it's going to be bad in Judah. You know, rocky, sandy, arid Judah. Things are going to get rough. Wow. Uh, that 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 was great, John. Th thank you so much. Because I just the, the average reader wouldn't wouldn't have gotten wouldn't have gotten most of that. That would have kind of just flown over most of our heads. 
hearing those verses read or reading them ourselves. Well, I'm not the average reader, Joel, as you you're know. You're not, you are absolutely yeah. not the average reader. And so you, I really appreciate, <laughs> I really appreciate what, just what you, you bring, you bring to this, to this masterclass theology and, and you're, <clears throat> you're such a, such a great addition to, to our crew here. And so, yeah, that's, that's it. There's hope. And this is something John, John brings up something that, that the listener back then would have gotten immediately. They would have pictured all those, all those ge geographical places and like, yeah, well, I get that. That's that. And that's, that's, this is, this is not a good text. This would have been a very scary text. And, and this is, can we find hope in the midst of this? So thank you, John. So we continue now verses 10 to 12. And that now God, now God speaks. So we, we've been waiting for this. And people have been talking to God, talking about God. Okay. Now God speaks. Now I will arise, says the Lord. And I kind of wish I had my James Earl Jonesy kind of voice, although he has retired from being Darth Vader now officially, but I still wish I, I could, I could summon him for God. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you and the peoples will be found and the peoples will be as if burned to lime. Like thorns cut down, they are burned in the fire. My goodness. So Mick, we'll go to you now. What is God's basic message about himself? Well, God has said a day when he's going to rise and dispense justice. Uh, God is going to be exalted. I love um, this, this echoes to me of Philippians chapter two. You know, every knee will bow on earth, under the earth, you know, everywhere. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is, is king. You know, God is going to be exalted, whether you, you like him or you don't, whether you believe in him or not, you know, you're going to exalt God. There's no getting around it. Um, he will be properly feared and revered by all his enemies included. Um, God describes himself as a consuming fire. You don't mess with a consuming fire. Mm. I mean, and, and that is our God. You know, everybody likes to think of God as just this, this uh, peacenik or, or, you know, kumbaya kind of guy but that's only a part of god the whole god is that but he's also the consuming fire that needs to be feared and revered and will be exalted and and, and rightly so only he can do what he can do whatever we think that is great on our part the reason we even have that ability whether we acknowledge him or not is because he gives it to us who gives you the opportunities who gives you the health who sets things up so that you can become whatever it is that you become it's god and your, your, your inability to acknowledge him doesn't change that. God will be exalted. Amen. And he has, a, he has kind of a warning shot here. God has a basic message, not only about himself, Mick, but also about Assyria or the, the enemy of God's people. And so what, what is his basic message? So what is this consuming fire? What message does he have for Assyria? Well, two ways of putting it are this, either shrimp on a barbie or as a master class theology trademark, crispy critters. Crispy critters. Nice. There you go. So the imagery of God as a consuming fire is that he's going to judge and ultimately wipe out his enemies, which is what, what Assyria happens to be at this moment. Assyria will, will be taken down by God and pretty much any other enemy in any other time and in the ultimate sense is going to be taken down by God. So if we as Christians feel persecuted today, this is something that 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 we need to hold on to as well. And and obviously Judah needed to hold on to it as well. And mm -hmm. so how, how would 
how, how would Judah have received this? Would, would this have communicated hope to them? What, what, how, if they're receiving these words as Isaiah communicates them from God to, to them, how would they have received them, do you think? Well, the same way that we understand hope when we're told some sort of negative, hostile, painful inconvenience or whatever, something will be removed from our lives. Um, to that end, um, that w anything that antagonizes all of us, uh, to that end, w that which antagonizes us, this is what gives us hope, you know, to know that God's going to deal with it. Uh, for Israel to know that Assyria is, was going to get her comeuppance and be removed from the world stage, that 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 scene is huge, mm. especially when you're living in the middle of it. I mean, I, I think of the people in the Ukraine with Russia bearing down on it, you know, you know, the hope that if God were, were, were to, to, to give that message to the Ukrainians, I'm going to to destroy that bear of Russia. You know, it's like, wow, that 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 is the kind of hope that that I, I want. Yeah, it's a hope that's implied with the Psalm 46 again, to be still mm -hmm. and know that I'm God. Well, you're knowing that God's going to handle his business. Yeah. And if, if God's business is, is to take care of the enemies, then God's going to take care of the enemies. And so if we know that God is good and God is God and we trust him and we know that he handles his business. And so that's it's something that I can't handle. Well, then by definition, he handles it. And so I, I'm either going to trust him or I'm not. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much, Mick. So we continue with, with, with 13 to 16. Hear, you who are far off, what I have done. So God's still speaking here. And you who are near, acknowledge my right, my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. And so we've got some messages here of, of warning and, and conviction. And this is God now speaking. So the consuming fire might have really terrified his own people. And in and, 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 and some regard, rightly so. That's part of the fear of the Lord. I mean, if, if you get a good campfire going, and it, it's, a, it's a campfire that's, especially on a chilly night, we're going to be up at camp. Some of us uh, men, we're going to go to our man camp up at Camp Awana at the, at the end of this week. And you know, the nights may be chilly, and a good, and a good campfire is, is, is really comforting to be able to, to sit around. And if you're like me, the smoke always seems to find me and come into my eyes here. But, but, but anyway, a campfire can be a very comforting thing, but you respect that fire. And you know right away that fire could get out of hand if you don't manage it right. You get too close and it'll burn you. I mean, how do we? How can we possibly live with this consuming fire? Because well, the, there's a fear there, and as we discussed earlier, that fear was was Judah's treasure, Zion's treasure, and and, and God's just letting His people know, hey, there's some sinners among you, and there's some hypocrites among you, and they're not going to have a great, and God's not going to tolerate hypocrisy within His midst. And that, that's something that the, the people needed to understand that if they're going to, if they're going to, if they're going to live with their God, if they're going to expect their God to deliver them and to live with them, then, you know, Adam and Eve had to find that out. They sinned and the garden no, no longer became their home. And so God is expecting 
He's giving clear expectations for his people. No, you, you must live this way. And in a sense, you could boil it down to this is how God treats people. This is how God, this, this is what justice and righteousness look like. And so be like God and say, God expects you to be holy as he is holy. He actually means that. God expects you to live differently. Again, this is like God giving you his instruction manual here. It's like, this is what God expects. So even if you're far off, those of you who are near, this, this may even be um, a, a picture of one day. I, I could see these being read one day in the future when, when the Babylonian exiles happen. Because at some point, they're going to be far off. At some point, they still might be near. Who can dwell? Well, the, the, this, this, is how, this is the kind of person that can dwell. And the one who loves people the way God loves people, the one who interacts with others the way God does. And these are the basic expectations God is giving to his people. And we're very grateful for that. Because we would be, it would be a very difficult situation if God never gave us his expectations. We would never know how we were supposed to be. We would always be wondering, am I okay with God? And we, some of us have been in relationships like that where the other person keeps us languishing on the other end. And we're constantly walking on eggshells. Like, what do I do? Is, is this person happy with me? I can't tell. And yeah, and some friendships are, those are not fun friendships or those, those are not fun work relationships. When we have a coworker or a boss who's always making us, putting us in a position where we don't know where we stand, you don't, that's not God. God is very, very clear about what he expects. And that's, that's what jumps out of me, verse 13 to 16. But we have the blessing as, as we, as we do, we're going to, we're going to just take this last big chunk and, and we're going to, um, we're, we're going to, going to read it um, all, all, all at one time here. And then what we'll do is Professor D and Crockpot will kind of help us walk through it. So let me, let me read 17 to 24. I realize it's a big chunk here, but, but that's kind of how we do. And then, uh, then we'll ask a couple of questions. So here we go. Your eyes will behold the king and his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, and he will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Wow. Well, so we're going to ask a couple, a couple questions about these verses. So first one, John, we're going to come your way. What do these verses communicate about the king? Well, they communicate that he is committed to Jerusalem and will not, he's not going to abandon it to the Assyrians forever. The Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem have grown accustomed to these Assyrian officials coming into the city and looking at their assets and demanding taxes paid to their king. Uh, that's the the in verses 18 and 19 the insolent people whose language they don't understand who are uh he, he who counted who weighed the tribute who counted the towers that's who it's talking about there but but a, a day will come when isaiah a, 
Isaiah says, this day will come when the Jerusalemites will expect to see their oppressors in their midst and will not find them. Why? Because the king in his splendor, verse 17, has removed them to restore his holy city and protect the people he has chosen to live there. So if you read on verses 20 to 24, you'll get a taste for how permanent God's commitment to Jerusalem is as his holy capital. Verse 20 says, literally, Jerusalem will be like a tent that does not travel. In the ancient world, in the ancient desert world, there were many people who lived in tents as nomads, you know, desert dwellers who moved from place to place. And Isaiah is saying that that way of life, that the transients, the coming and going is the opposite of what God intends for his people and his holy city long term. It's going to be a permanent dwelling for him and his people. So no more invasions, no more conquests, no more deportation and exile, and certainly no more question over whether God is the supreme ruler of all the nations. In addition to all that, we get these images of an, like an ecologically restored Jerusalem with these rivers and wide streams flowing through it. Verse 21, if you look at other end times prophecies, like uh, I think it's Zechariah 14, living waters flowing out of Jerusalem. That's the kind of imagery that's used there too. So part of this renewed kingdom of God with Jerusalem as the capital involves physically remaking and revivifying. Revivifying? Re Revivif? I think that's right. I think that's a word. Somebody check that for me. Somebody fact check me. Uh, revivifying the city. And then, <clears throat> it, so as it, as it was then, and is now, it's pretty much just rocks and hills. But in that day, it says, in the Lord's day, living water will flow out of it. And yet Isaiah stipulates not for the purposes of war. It's not going to be for the purposes of transporting these huge ships in and out of the city. No, there will be, there will be no warships coming in and out of the city mm. because these are waters of life, not waters of war and death. So this divine king we learn here is a life-giving one. We saw it in creation. You know, we see it in his redemptive plan for humanity when sin enters the world, and we'll see it again in the age to come when sin is no longer part of the world. God is this great judge of the nations who deals out death and destruction to those who deserve it. Yes, but Isaiah makes it clear that, you know, he also assures us that God is the life-giving king who hmm. creates life and restores life when he sees fit. Well, thank you, John. That's that. That's a really good, really good summary there. The, these verses are, even as I read them out loud, they just they're just ringing in the ears. Like this is this is the God we have, and this is the hope yeah. He provides. And and Mick, so let, let's ask about that hope. What do these verses describe as blessings for the King's people? So so John gave us so what they communicate about the King. So now we who turn to the King, if, if we're originally in Judah's context or even us today. We who turn to the king for our hope, what blessings does the king provide here in these verses? Well, that they would no longer have to fear enemies, that we will no longer have to feel fear enemies. And enemies includes everybody from an outright enemy, anybody who, who is hostile to us, who antagonizes us in any shape, way, or form. Verse 19, you will see no more the insolent people. Jerusalem will, will no longer be conquered. You know, there's in this time of history, it seems like Jerusalem is constantly one thing or another seems to be happening. But there's going to be a time when Jerusalem is never going to be conquered again. She is described as immovable, as an immovable tent. 
And again, you know, John mentioned this earlier, but the real security that can only come from God, permanence. I love that word, permanence. Um, you know, uh, sickness will be done away with. And perhaps most importantly, their sins are going to be forgiven. And I think that was to me the biggest one, because I mean, that's the thing that we all need. You can remove war, you can remove sicknesses, and you can remove all the other detriments to society. You know what you have? You have the Garden of Eden. Guess what? Adam still sinned. Eve still sinned. God's going to, to forgive sins, and then there will be no more sins. Yeah, I, I love that you brought that up because we who are New Testament Christians, we, we tend to look at salvation just from the lens of the cross, and rightly so. But in our original context, what is salvation? And if you look at verse 22, he will save us. It basically is saying, I or the nation is in a position we cannot, we have no hope other than God. We cannot alter our situation other than God. We will be crispy critters unless God saves us. And we've already talked about that, where I believe it was, it was in chapter one, where it's like, if, if, if God didn't preserve a remnant, we'd all be like Sodom. Like, there's something about that, where it's like, I have no hope to my situation outside of God. And if he doesn't deliver me from my enemy, I'm toast. And that's the cross. It's like, that is our hope. It's like that Jesus, when he came, he conquered sin and death. It's like the, the, the biggest and greatest of enemies. So the Old, the Old Testament context of salvation is also the New Testament context of salvation. That's where we get the idea. It's like if, if, if we don't place our trust exclusively in Jesus, we have no hope because he, he's the one who provided that salvation. And so that unique trust in God is also an Old Testament trust in God. It's like you're either trusting God or you're not trusting God. He either is your salvation and hope or you are your salvation or hope, or your envoys to Syria, or your, your, your failed treaties with, with, with Egypt, or something like that, they're going to be your hope. It's either going to be something you're going to accomplish, or something that God's going to accomplish. And that plays right into the, the tension with, with spirit and flesh in the book of Galatians as well, where you're relying, where you're not relying. This all ties back into Isaiah, and to the geopolitical context that John explained for us earlier. Either you're going to be the hope to your situation, or God is. And if God is, then you better be trusting him. You better be living his way. You better be, you better be following what he's given you because that's the way he operates. He expects his people to be like him. And if you expect to dwell with him, you need to live like him. And this, this is the expectation that God has. This is good stuff. And, and that, that's the basic hope of chapter 33. It's, I, came up, I came up with four, four things flowing from this. The first one is, God's bigger than your Assyria. Whatever your Assyria is, whatever you got, and put Assyria in quotes there, but God's bigger than that. He's the one who is exalted. So whatever impossible thing you're going through, God is bigger. And I was, I, I was pondering this last night, and I, I, I had a weaker moment where I was just pondering finances and, and, and our car's making a strange noise, and I got to get it to a mechanic today, and, and I'm just dreading what the bill is going to be. And, and my wife came to me with, with something she wanted to buy for the house or whatever. And I, I had a weak moment where I'm like, you know what? I don't want to talk about other bills right now. I, I, I'm focused on this. Well, that was my Assyria in the moment. And my wife, you know, calmly reminded me, you know, Joel, we trust God. You know, at some point we got to trust God. And I'm like, you know, okay, there was, a, there was a great point there. That's usually something I like to say. And, but I had a weak moment. There was some, my Assyria was really big at that point in my mind. And at the end of the day, is it? No, God is bigger. 
we have to remember God is bigger than your Assyria. Number two, God is worth waiting for. And Judah had to figure that out here. We waited, we're waiting upon you, God. We're waiting for what you're going to do. They were in a horrible, horrible situation where there didn't seem to be a lot of answers except waiting. And yet they had to wait. You and I are in situations too where, where things aren't exactly all ironed out. They're messy. They're, they're untidy. There's things that we're going through. They're like, I just don't know what God is going to do. Some of us are, are some of us who, who are very spiritual minded will be pray, come Lord Jesus, come now. I, I can't handle this life anymore. All this stuff going on and our divided world, but God's worth waiting for. So we're waiting on his timing. We're waiting for his will to unfold. And so he's bigger than your Assyria. He's worth waiting for. And he's made his expectations clear. And that gives us hope, like I mentioned before, because now we know what God expects of us. And that basic expectation is, is from, again, from Ecclesiastes, is to fear God and obey him. And so we get the understanding where we understand where, where, where we kind of get where the Pharisees were coming from, because they're going to come out of this context, especially with the, Pharise the Pharisaic world that really loved the prophets. The, the, the Sadducees didn't play around with the prophets, but the Pharisees loved the prophets. So now the Pharisee mindset is, I need to be the kind of person that God approves of. And so even as we're being conquered by other nations, now Rome's come onto the scene in the time of Jesus. So now I've got to live a certain way to get God's approval of me and to make sure that I belong on God's team. And so there's something about that third hope there this, this he's made his made his expectations blessedly clear to us. That is a hope. So we now know how God operates and what he expects of us. But it also is pretty condemning because how can I do that on my own? And on, on my own, I, I'm never going to leave the Joel path and come onto the Jesus path on my own. I'm never going to praise God. How can me? It's like all, all my righteousness, as Isaiah says, like, like filthy rags. So what can I do? Well, we're so grateful to have a text that could help us. It's a text much later than Isaiah. But for our listeners here, Romans chapter 8. You, however, this is verse 9. Of the, we'll start with verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So we got this expectation that you need to live a certain way. And there's things that you need to do. You need to put to death certain things. You need to live a certain way. And God was calling Judah to do the exact same thing. Those of you who are sinners in Zion, pay attention. Because God's going to, that consuming fire is going to come in. And it's going to burn away all the other dross and stuff. But you know what? You don't want to be burned either. So you need to, you know, this is, this is your time. This is the original turn or burn kind of moment with a consuming fire. So there's ways in which you need to live. But we understand theologically, the only way I can do that, the only way I can please God is if the Holy Spirit is working in me. And so that's our tension right there as we land the plane, is that there's great hope for me and for any one of you listening, live according to the Spirit. But that means that we follow the Spirit, that we trust God, we follow His leading, we 
depend upon him and rely upon him for the strength to obey him each day, but that we prioritize it, that we don't, that we don't quench the spirit, that we, that we follow and we obey. And, we, and God is expecting our obedience, but he also empowers that obedience. That's the same thing. We get, we get this idea um, from Romans 8, but that's the same expectation in Isaiah 33. God is bigger than your Assyria. He's worth waiting for. He's made his expectations very clear. So now wear the uniform. Say, you're on God's team. Now wear the uniform of being on God's team and trust him to provide the ability to do so. This has been a wonderful time in Isaiah 33. Thank you, Professor D and for Crockpot for helping us to understand this, this key text that many of us may not even remember was still there, but it is good. He is our stability for our times. He is our judge. Come save us, Lord. What great self-talk to keep in, 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 keep in your quiver, to fire away when you have despair. This has been Masterclass Theology. As always, I am Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. And I'm Crockpot. Wonderful. God bless you all. We'll see you next time from Chapter 40. God bless. Amen. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.